back together again. Yeah. To talk about Need Essentials, wetsuits and outerwear, NeedEssentialsUSA.com. Well, if you're lucky enough to have a Need Essentials, uh, some outerwear, specifically that outer shell that they make for skiing and snowboarding, you could have used it for the last two weeks on the coast in California. Um, that thing will shed all the water. You will be dry underneath it. And Neat Essentials makes such great wetsuits, but we often don't talk about their outerwear, which is unbelievably toasty, warm. And again, the shell will keep you dry as well. Technical too. Pockets in the right spot. They lay to- The zippers lay totally flat. The By the way, it's called the Polar Tech 3 layer jacket. So again, Everything you need, nothing you don't. So they make three jackets, a thin one, a thick one, and then an outer one. You can actually stack them if you're going to be somewhere frigid and wear all three. But for us around here where we're just dealing with the rain, it's the perfect rain slicker. So it has like a shell that's almost like a laminate on the outside shell that slicks the water off. There's a hood, articulated elbow for better mobility, billowed front chest pockets for when you are skiing and you need that extra little snack pocket, things like that. And of course, the kind of original core of Need Essentials business is the wetsuit. And again, everything you need, nothing you don't. So simple, black, but warm and inexpensive. They also have booties, hoods, balaclavas, and uh, yeah, everything you need for the essentials of surfing. NeedEssentialsUSA.com. And of course, realwatersports.com is always with us for all your surfboard purchasing consideration. You and I are often talking about our equipment, um, our boards, our fins, our leashes, the gear that we need to get in the water and stay in the water and be successful in the water. And frankly, Real Water Sports is your one-stop shop for all killer, no filler, Real Water Sports. Board bags, clothing traction even if you want to i know some people are getting into foil lately they got the full foil setups from beginner starter stuff to the um more kind of elite expert level things so go check them out realwatersports.com as we see some movement at the takeoff zone it's kelly slater grabbing rail a clean entry this thing holding open it spits when it spit me i thought it was going to spit me off my board comes out with the spit spits him out comes out after the spit gets spat out of another good looking wave here spit 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 we're just spitballing right yeah i got Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. Holy mackerel, David. What a week in surf we've had. So much to discuss. Um, Barriers being broken by women. uh, Radical mission to the far reaches of the San Diego coastline. And um, just some radical action at the backdoor shootout as well. Plus a lot of other stuff, just local California surfing. I mean, truly, I was thinking about in the almost 10 years that we've been doing this show, it'll be 10 years in September. So we're at nine right now. This might be the best week of surf we've ever had. And that, I mean, that applies for just local run of surf that you and I can access in the water, but also in the surf world of what's happening throughout the Pacific. Um, I cannot think of a more action-packed week. Well, I would agree with you. I mean, there was many people in the water where 
I surf that we're saying it, it's as good as it's ever been. <clears throat> and that's as a, as a salty, crusty old guy, you want to put on your hat and go, no, you should have seen it in 83 or 96 or 97 or whatever, you know, but the bottom line is I would agree with those people from, from my 30 plus years of surfing in the San Diego region. I would say that, that that Friday was the 13th was just as good as, as good as it gets. Yeah. And around San Diego. And you're right. Is that being the pinnacle day? But to be honest, the Friday before that was as big and good as I've ever seen it in the interim week. Really, really good. You know, it's kind of been it's been an incredible run. And then so for our purposes, in terms of having a podcast where we need to talk about surfing every week, then Cortez uh, backdoor shootout. Eddie going and then not going like there's just been epic, epic surf uh, everywhere or not everywhere, but in the Pacific anyways. So lots and lots to discuss this week. Yeah, I I think the lead story um, might be the Cortez Bank mission, David. Um, So let's start there. Okay. Um, A group of surfers um, led by Bill Sharp, who's been a Bill Sharp of XXL fame, who's basically been the the brainstorm and, and the mastermind behind a lot of these, well, all of these uh, XXL sort of contests or events or competitions and or strike missions, which is the case now. And um, Bill's a guy who's a former editor at Surfing Magazine, was basically Larry Flame Moore's right-hand man. And... Um, as you may or may not know, a long time ago, I think in the 80s or early 90s, Larry Moore got in a, a plane, a small plane with a pilot, knowing that there was a wave some 200 miles off the coast of San Diego, known as the Cortez Bank. And they flew out there and spotted it and saw waves and took pictures from the airplane, basically said, yeah, this is legit. This is a this is a thing. And they turned around and went back and uh, I don't have my timeline exactly right, but a few years later, when everything lined up, they they um, they got together a boat and a crew of guys and went out there and surfed it. Um, interestingly, not the first time it was surfed. Um, I was doing some research back in the 60s. Uh, a fisherman from Oceanside caught a wave out at the Cortez Bank, <clears throat> which is kind of where the the rumor of this place being uh, a surf spot, you know, sort of started to bubble and boil, you know? So um, I'll see if I can pull it up. Yeah, I'm curious. The story must be that he was out there fishing and then saw the wave and happened to have a board on on board. Yeah. um, Because how else would you know that it exists? It's... um, 19, let me see if I can pull it up here. Bear with me. I'm on, right. I'm on Wikipedia, folks. So I got, okay, wow. here we go. The summer of 1961. So it was a summertime swell. Surfer Harrison Ely of Oceanside, California became one of the first people, it says, one of the first people to surf a wave at what was then called Bishop Rock. And it may still be called Bishop Rock on some navigational charts. Then, this is super interesting, in and around 1973, Ilima Kalama, 
Dave Kalama's father nearly died out there when his abalone fishing boat sank on the Bishop Rock in the middle of the night. So there's a story that needs to get told. Now, my good friend Chris Dixon wrote a book about the Cortez Bank, and it has uh, all of these stories in it. And it's here somewhere in my, you know, pile of surf books. And I, it'd be fun to break it out and to get into some anecdotes. Perhaps next time we could do that. Uh, so the, the wave was written a long time ago, but this particular strike mission on Friday was for the 100-foot wave series on HBO, the much acclaimed series, which you and I loved, which focused on Nazare, I think I'm saying that right, uh, in Portugal for the first uh, the first uh, season. season. Thank you. I kept wanting to say series. And then this year, They've um, Bill, Bill Sharp and the producers there have been focused on the Cortez Bank for a year, but apparently last year it was just such a crappy winter season that they kind of had to wait. So this particular charge on the Cortez Bank has been in the planning for 18 months or so. And um, hats off to those guys for scoring out there on Friday. David, why don't you give us a rundown on who was out there and uh, what the waves were like and what they found when they woke up? Uh, that morning well it's a big gamble to uh, try to go check it obviously it's not like driving to your local spot and looking at it from the parking lot because it's so far out to sea cheers to your ag1 and my ag1 um and uh so ultimately nick von rupp is estimating the costs of this mission at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to go surf cortez for one day and this includes five surfers uh, and HBO's production crew to document it, of course, for the season two. But you have boats and then you have ski teams as well. So there's a lot of equipment that's being moved. Um, but along with Garrett McNamara was Nick Von Rupp, Justine DuPont, Andrew Cotton, Will Scudin, and Lucas Chumbo Chianca. And Ultimately, what ended up happening is they absolutely scored the biggest day from dawn to, dawn, uh, dawn to dusk that Bill Sharp had ever seen. He said it was 60 foot and flawless the entire day. So um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And Garrett's been going there for 20 years. Bill, as you mentioned, has been uh, going there for a very long time. I think he said that he surfed it in the 90s, uh, paddle surfing, and then in the early 2000s with Mike Parsons and Brad Gerlach, I think, was on that trip. There's a pretty famous yeah, crew that was really... 2008 was that trip with Parsons, okay. Grant Twiggy Baker, and Greg Long. And I believe the waves were bigger than I think what um, Bill was saying was it was as flawless as he's ever seen it on the trip on Friday, but... There was some sort of wonky, crazy 80 to 90 footers. There was one wave caught by Greg Long that it was so wonky and they just weren't set up as thoroughly as they were for this trip. So there weren't photographers to actually catch this wave that all of the witnesses were out that were out there say was easily 90 feet. And um, Greg Long, no one even took the picture. It's all in their minds. Now it's just a it's a it's a kind of a cool thing in a weird way that there's no picture. It's like this. It's got this Greg Knoll kind of like Makaha, bit largest wave ever ridden sort of mythology around it. And that was in 2008, but uh, I digress. Go ahead. Well, 
<clears throat> another challenge is lining up in the right spot, right? Like if you don't have markers to your left, to your right and on shore, you don't even know where to sit. And so you think you may, and maybe the swell is rising. So you are sitting in the right position for this last set that came through. Thank you. But you're uh, out of position for the bigger set that's out the back. And to be out of position at a spot like that means you're going to get steamrolled. So pretty scary. A lot of, lot of moving parts. And there is a couple of images that you'll see that are shot from behind the wave, looking at the back of the breaking wave. And you can see nothing but ocean where you normally would see shore. So it's just kind of an eerie feeling. Yeah, it's amazing that those guys back in the day actually tried to pilot. I think it was John Walla and Evan Slater, and they just got cleaned up. I mean, they, I think they caught a few waves. It was a, it was a smaller day, I believe, that day, um, but still 40 to 50 feet. And and it's one of those things where, you know, you're trying to line up on a 9.6 on a gun for a 25-foot wave. And quite, and people use the word literally too much, myself included, but quite literally, you don't catch it, turn around, and there's a wave twice as big, 50 feet, bearing down on you from 100 yards out. I mean, it's just not really a paddleable wave. Yeah, you can do it, but it's much more approachable from a ski. One thing, the skis help to provide some sense of a lineup. I know that those guys put buoys out to help them kind of understand where they're supposed to be, but uh, wow, just incredible. And you know what else is incredible? How about doing all of this, just the rush, the anxiety, the, the just intensity of it all, and then a great white shark coming up and scouring and, and scarfing a massive tuna, which occurred on Friday out there. The, the ski drivers were also bumped by the shark. I don't know if it was a great white, but it was a shark that they all saw, and um, that's got to keep you uh, on top of your ski and on top of your toes. <laughs> that's incentive for not wiping out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, in the, in the text that I saw, maybe it was on Stab's Instagram, they did refer to it as a great white, but yeah, that is crazy. The imagery coming out of this day is spectacular. And I have a feeling that the best of it is probably saved for HBO's documentary. Um, but it clearly is in my memory, the cleanest, biggest surf I've ever seen. And it almost looks like snowboarding more than surfing in a lot of ways. Um, obviously people who are riding those tow boards, you never see them pumping, you know, they're just, it's like clean, long snowboard lines, just really, really Tons graceful. Of Tons, Tons of speed. speed. And, and so glassy, you know, like when we think you and I sometimes see Nazare and we're like, oh, okay, it's just kind of, I don't know. It's just so chunky and wonky and weird that it's just not um, something that we can relate to. But the glassiness of that session and the way that the wave breaks, like you would, it's basically like a huge, it's a, it's a rideable wave, you know, it's just a, at an 80 foot level, it's just scaled up so incredibly that it looks more relatable for you and for uh, me and for the rest of the surfers out there, it just looks like a, a legit wave and um, fascinating. I've got some insight into the Cortez Bank. I don't know if you're interested in this or not, but um, let's hear it. I can tell you that in 1957, a fairly disastrous exploration at the Cortez Bank for treasure took place by a guy named Mel Fisher. Hmm. He was convinced that the wreckage of a Spanish galleon lay on the seafloor off of the Bishop Rock. The expedition found no treasure, 
but that ship carrying Mel Fisher burned nearly down to the water line, you know, which is where the paint goes from red to black. There have been at least two efforts, David, to turn the Cortez Bank into an island nation. I remember reading about this in the LA Times, and this is a big part of Chris Dixon's book as well. The most notable time trying to turn this place into an island nation occurred in late 1966, when a team of entrepreneurs planned to turn the Cortez Bank into the constitutional monarchy of Abalonia. The general plan was to scuttle World War II era concrete hauled freighters, probably the Tampa Bay built McCloskey ship known as the Richard Lewis Humphrey, which was later badged Jalisco in Mexico. So they're trying to scuttle a concrete freighter atop the Bishop, Bishop Rock in very shallow water and then surround the ship with an ever-expanding ring of boulders so she could be used as a seafood processing factory. The group reasoned that international maritime law would allow them to become the rulers of their own nation because the bank lay in international waters. The ship was instead destroyed atop the Bishop Rock by the same giant waves that are surfed today, and her crew was nearly killed. The wreck of that boat today lies beneath the surf zone in three pieces in six to 40 feet of water. And it's a diving location. And it's also something that the surfers have to be aware of. Uh, another company planned to form a nation called Toluga in the same region. But by this time, the US government declared that the Bishop Rock and uh, Cortez Bank is part of the continental shelf and was a US territory. Interestingly, in 1985, the aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise, struck the Cortez Bank Reef about one mile east of that Bishop Rock, putting a 60-foot gash in her outer hull and um, ripped off part of her keel. She was severely deformed. Um, she had to continue operations, but uh, moved into dry dock in San Francisco for repairs. So that's some strange non-surf-related history of the Cortez Bank. The place is kind of trippy. It's got a lot of history. Again, I think the Alima Kalama story is fascinating. I know you can, we can get more insight into that from Chris's book, uh, but there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Really, truly fascinating. So just kind of a general understanding of why this wave happens. Obviously, water swells going from very deep water to shallow water is what makes them break. And Nazare is a great example of a super deep water wave that hits a very shallow shelf right by the cliff and creates that wave. That's why it's so big. But out here, those swells are uninterrupted for who knows how long, you know, from Alaska, essentially. So having that uh, rock close to the surface creates the first interruption in the swell. Whereas waves that are coming near San Diego's coastline, Orange County's coastline, the swell energy is kind of getting interrupted as the coast slowly gets shallower and shallower or the, the ocean floor gets shallower and shallower. So by the time it ultimately hits a reef or something like that, a lot of the energy has been dissipated. Whereas Cortez, it's entirely un uninterrupted until it hits that, correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A couple of real quick things. Nazare is very similar to Blacks in that there's a deep water canyon there. You know, could be a mile deep. I don't know exactly how deep. So that's why you get um, the radical waves at Nazare and at Blacks because there is this interruption in the long flowing continental shelf. 
Um, but you're right, the bathymetry out there at the Cortez Bank is so shallow, uh, so deep that all it's much like Hawaii. It just all of a sudden it hits this landmass and goes, bloop, you know, and just pops up. And, so, uh, yeah. but there is no landmass at Cortez. Obviously, it's submerged. Well, there's the Bishop this rock, rock. Right? There's this Bishop Rock. Like it, it, that's the landmass. That's why. But Bishop Rock is submerged still, right? It probably is, but it's. Yeah. Relative to the bathymetry of the air, I mean, that exactly. creates, there's there's probably sandbars that are moving, I've heard out there too, a lot of shifting stuff. Well, but, that's what yeah. I was going to ask is, because I've never seen the rock, so I s- suppose or uh, assume that it's submerged, but it's also a perfect wave. So like what else is happening? Is there a reef that's off that rock or is it just like a, it's almost like a point break, you know? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I don't. I, again, the Chris Dixon book would probably give us some more insight into exactly what's underneath the water and where the Bishop Rock wave or uh, resides relative to the wave. I'm as interested in it as a Southwell spot. You know, um, as we mentioned, the first guy to ride a wave was in the summer, and I know it's not even thought about from a Southwell standpoint, but I bet it could be just like next level four to six feet peeling left somewhere you know on the other side i don't know that'd be but amazing let's be clear i would never ever want to go out there and surf just because of the the freakiness of it you know the depth know. you're literally in the middle of nowhere like there's no place for me to crawl onto the shore and ask for my mama you know what i mean it's, <laughs> <laughs> well it's freaking radical out there man there's one image that i'd never seen before this type of a capture it's from rob brown and um, there's North Peak and West Peak breaking at the same time and both perfectly right-hand flawless tubes. And so the North Peak is out further. It's kind of looks like Jaws where that West Bowl swings in, yeah. um, except these are two separate waves. So it's kind of the outside peak and then the inside West Bowl peak, but both breaking and perfect uh, synchronicity i suppose yeah and uh, yeah. i never realized that there was that uh two separate defined zones out there you know but again i'm sure that the hbo documentary will be pulling from chris's book and doing a deep deep dive to build the context of all of these things so whenever season two is slated we'll be watching that for sure yeah it's going to be fascinating and 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 one last thing which will segue into perhaps our second segment here david is justine dupont caught what i believe this week we had two massive sort of leaps forward for women surfing and justine dupont out here at cortez bank with this crew caught a massive huge wave perhaps i don't know i don't want to get into nitpicking here but maybe the largest wave ever surfed by a woman. Uh, I know that um, our Brazilian friend, Maya, Maya Gabiera, uh, caught a massive wave at Nazare, um, which, and I'm not here to discount that, that's incredible too. But there's something about this wave, again, that is more relatable. So when you see Justine Dupont on this massive wave, however big it is, I don't know, 80 feet, it was, uh, many are suggesting well, the crew that was out there suggesting it was the biggest wave of the day ridden out there. And so Justine DuPont, um, again, I feel like the goal line has moved. You know, the yard markers have moved for women's big wave surfing. What she did out there 
is uh, next level. And so congratulations to her. And, and that moves us into, David, what you and I and the rest of the world saw at Pipeline with Moana Jones-Wong. Totally. I will say a little bit about Justine, too, before we do get on Moana's wave. Um, Justine, as we discussed here on the show, I feel got robbed during that Guinness Book of World Record assessment at Nazare. She was in the water the same day as uh, Maya, Gabiera. They both got waves and they were nitpicking whose wave is bigger, whose wave is going to be the record breaker. And Justine's was more square, top to bottom, like barreling. And Maya's was a mush burger that she ultimately fell on before she completed the ride. And the Guinness, the record went to Maya. And so you and I were speculating with a little bit of background information. It wasn't pure speculation, but we were speculating that it was a political decision for Maya to win. Um, You know, she's got more sponsors. She has more visibility. There's kind of a, a number of things that go with it. And we had felt like Justine got robbed. I reached out to Justine at the time, hoping to do a podcast interview with her, and she never replied, but she did take to Instagram and um, congratulated Maya, was like, look, this isn't about Maya. Like, I'm not angry at Maya. Maya surfed an incredible wave. She's out there all the time charging it. She's among the pioneers out there. She deserves a lot of accolade. However, we need to figure out a more objective way to measure these things, because I do feel like my wave is the biggest wave essentially. And I would like to also have credit for what I was doing out there. And um, so Justine has been out here, out everywhere, charging. Anytime there's massive swell at not only toe spots, but paddle spots too, she pops up. And I feel like she's kind of been underfunded, let's say. Not that there's an industry that we can point the finger of blame at anymore because I think all of their sponsors are kind of non-endemics. But I feel like she just hasn't quite gotten the support that she deserves for how constantly she is pushing uh, the boundary line. And so to see her get the invite on this trip, I think was well-deserved. Look, only five people are coming and they're not trying to mandate, oh, we need a woman on this trip. They're just saying we need the five most capable big wave surfers who are committed and she's among the five. So I think that's a huge uh, accolade in and of itself. But then to go out there and get the biggest wave of the day and surf it flawlessly, by the way, again, snowboard carving the thing. It's not like hanging on for dear life and trying to find the shoulder. She's just like shredding the wave. So I think she deserves all the accolade. And hopefully this um, HBO season two will blow up her career, you know? I think it. I think it's already happening. To be honest with you, um, and I totally agree. You know, they, you know, they had to select some people. I would say that I will say this though, that as a producer of this show, you're absolutely saying we need a female. You know, um, you, you know, the idea that she was selected. Uh, again, I'm not trying to take anything away. I'm just saying that if I was producing it, I would go absolutely. I want the best female surfer. I want the best males. You know what I mean? Like I would. I would have. selected just but you know you easily could have selected uh another guy you know kai lenny huh well kai lenny 
Yeah. So again, I'm super stoked on Justine. And, and by the way, the one thing that I think is 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 crucial is that they're like, Justine's our gal. You know, Justine's the surfer that we want. You know, like of all the female rippers, and there's quite a few. It could have been Maya. It could have been many of the girls that are surfing Jaws now. Uh, you know, it could have been a few different people. Justine, far and away is on Garrett's radar and is on Bill Sharp's radar and frankly should be and is on our radar and should be on everyone's radar. She is legit next level, a top athlete, one of the greatest big wave surfers right now in the world. Yeah, I well, I guess what I think is, sure, it's great to have diversity from the producer standpoint, but they would never uh, jeopardize somebody who wasn't qualified. You know, it's not like... Exactly. Oh, let's let's throw in a woman. No, no. Uh, do you do you think Carissa Moore will stand up to the challenge? Let's offer it to her. Maybe she will. It wasn't that. It was just. And to be honest, I don't think there's that many women that are qualified. I think there are a number of women that are charging Jaws and Waimea and pa- certainly paddling into those waves. But in terms of sixty foot towing waves, I can think of two. I can think of Maya and Justine, and there might be others. But then if you think, well, who's actually going to go out there and get the wave of the day? Justine, you know? So I think I think she stands kind of in a class of her own. Maybe a class of two, but there's not a lot. That's well, for sure. Let me say this. I what's for sure we know is that Maya and Justine and the, and maybe some other girls that we don't know about are dedicated and focused on this. I do believe if you took Carissa Moore and said, Hey, look, you're not doing the CT. You're going to focus on this. And of course, internally, she was like, this is what I'm passionate about. Chris Moore and many of the other girls, if they were as focused on this aspect of surfing as is Justine, they would do fine. Chris Moore would do fine. There are other gals that would that would kill it, you know, that would do great, um, given the, the opportunity to focus purely on this aspect. And back to that segue, she was also in the backdoor shootout. She was part of the New Earth Projects team with Kelly Slater. Um, so yeah, let's transition backdoor shootout. Hold on for just a sec. Okay. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Back to our shootout. Oh my. 
Moana Jones Wong, what? One of the two women that basically broke barriers this week? Truly, I was thinking there's a couple like a couple of iconic pipe waves over the years that kind of stand out as a flashpoint in time. Derek Ho's wave, of course, as a turning point. This is one of those moments, I feel. This wave, it was just after the buzzer, apparently, of the backdoor shootout, which got stellar waves all day. And then just after the buzzer, the wave comes to Moana, and um, she surfed it flawlessly. It is the best pipe wave I've ever seen any female get by a long margin. Yeah, that was the feeling that I got. And uh, I think that's the feeling everyone got. And it wasn't like, a, for me, it wasn't a situation where you went, hmm, what else stacks up against that? You saw it and you went, holy crap, that was just, not only did she move the bar, but she basically broke the bar over her leg, you know, and threw it aside. Like it was next level. There was no doubt that this was, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's somebody that can go, oh, what about blah, 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 19, but yeah. I don't think so. I think we would have seen it. And um this was just the craziest, thickest, and of note, the, the way that the swell was breaking that day, and this was the last day, I believe. Was it the last day or the second to last day? Um, I want to say it was the second to last day. Yeah, when it was just... Anyway, the, the, it was either the interval, the period. Uh, something about the swell was just next level round thick, and the spits were everyone was like a fire hose. Like it wasn't just like totally. little teeny mounts of like chandelier spit. It was like stinging your back. And it was this, these, you know, the turmoil inside the tube was just so concentrated and had such velocity when it came out. It was, it was mind blowing that swell. Well, it's interesting. I heard Nathan Florence saying, um, somehow the backdoor shootout always gets the best waves of the season. And uh, they did this season as well. Like this, this little run, this two day run day one was bigger, but day two was still good. Like this two day run was flawless, classic pipe conditions with an occasional super sketchy wave at backdoor. And that's, that's what this, this, the lore of this spot has all been built around was days like this. And Tons of 10-point rides. Uh, it, the thing is, it's really hard to keep track of the scoring for the Dehui backdoor shootout. It's actually hard to even... I had listeners DMing me saying they didn't even know it was on. They were DMing me after the fact, the day after going, hey, how did I... I pay close attention. I didn't know this was on. The commentary is good, but they don't have scores mm-hmm. constantly running. They don't have a ticker tape. They're often not showing replays. So it's a little hard to track but it almost doesn't matter because it's yeah, more of a camaraderie. Yeah, but, yeah, it's almost charming. It's almost kind of yeah. charming. Well, also, I don't really care who wins. You know, like we're now after the fact and we still don't know. They have not announced a winner. And I'll get into why they haven't. <laughs> I'll get into why they haven't because it's actually- care. It was We so don't care. Good. That's the God. thing. It was basically like an epic day at Pipe with all the best guys and they were all going and you just got to sit there and watch it while, you were, while guys were commentating in the background without the crowd it was awesome yeah it is awesome and so what i was saying was lots of 10 point rides actually it turns out this format allows for uh 11 or 12 i forget but it allows for out of respect for nigel tufnell from spinal tap 
they decided to make it 12. They didn't want to touch 11. That's off limits. That's Nigel's space. So they went to 12. Got it. Is that their real explanation? If it isn't, it should be. And it is. It really should be. And I believe that it could be. Um, (laughs) But so they allow the scale to go to 12 because, hey, we've seen a 10 point ride. But we all know that there's a couple of locations in the world that will blow your mind. And that pipe is one of those locations. And so we're going to allow it to go to 12. So I don't know if anybody got any 12 point rides because you can't track the information anywhere. And I wasn't watching 10 hours straight and I didn't have the volume up all the time. But the point is there's in 10 point rides left and right of people just getting blown out. But let's not forget about how dangerous pipe is. And we were reminded in three very scary incidents, Billy Kemper went to the hospital, Makua Rothman went to the hospital. These are legit. I mean, Billy Kemper is the three, I think three time big wave world champ. You know, I mean, the kid he's won he's won Jaws four times. Okay. Four times then. That's insane. And that's an incredible stat. That's like mind blowing. And fit as can be like the guy spends tons of time at the gym to mitigate against this sort of a thing. So the fact that Billy gets humbled once again by mother nature is a indicator of how serious this spot is. Makua also big wave world champ. And then the most scary was Kala Grace, who is still in the hospital uh, three or four days later. And so did you witness that wipeout? No, I actually did not. I'll send you the video clip for it and I'll post it with today's episode if I can. Um, Really scary. So Kala is super qualified, you know, and capable. He could win the event. He spends tons of time out there and he got a full closeout, like double overhead, huge, uh, thick, looked amazing on the takeoff. And then as the drone angle kind of pulls back, you could see the thing was going to close out, but he just stays in the barrel, wipes out, comes up from the water, Emi or, or Emio, Emio is on the next wave. And um, you notice that Kala, after reviewing it a second or third time, you notice his helmet's gone. So he was wearing a helmet on the wave, gets wiped out in the closeout and his helmet's gone. Well, then Emio's wave uh, basically breaks right in front of him. So Kala gets back on his board and that wave breaks in front of him and he tries to duck dive it. Then there's a third one. And the, by the third one, he's like out a little bit further, right in the impact zone, like in the worst possible position. And the wave really barrels hard right where he's duck diving. And he's literally duck diving like right under the impact of the lip. And it probably was shallow there as well. So just, you could just tell from the concussion of that duck dive, like, where the wave is breaking, it was going to blow him up. And apparently he also got dragged along the reef uh, on the bottom as well. So the compression of that and then, well, coming off two wipeouts or the wipeout, then the duck dive, then the compression of that, then getting dragged on the reef. The commentators don't realize that it's a bad situation yet, but the skis do. And so the skis dart in and the first ski the guy on the sled jumps off to try to rescue him. Second ski comes in, the driver jumps off the ski to rescue him, which you never really see. 
So the driver fully ditches the ski with waves coming. So the ski gets toppled over and is rolling into the shore. And you're like, oh my gosh, now this has got to be a bad situation. Apparently what the ski driver saw was Kala was uh, knocked unconscious and he was just floating. And it was like, if I don't get my arms on that body in this second, the body's going to get, yeah, Yeah. we're going to lose him. The body's going to get washed. So it was really scary. They call or they uh, were able to get Kala to the beach, thankfully. And um, I heard that they, they put, were doing CPR on the back of the ski on the way in. Is that true? Oh, were they? Maybe they were. That's something I read. I don't know. Maybe they were. Um, yeah. Well, they got him to the beach, thankfully. And uh, they put the event on hold because... It was that scary of a situation. They eventually called the way the event back on, but he was taken to the hospital. He was unconscious. I think they put him in a medically induced coma for a couple of days. And um, we still don't know. I can give you an update, actually. Uh, Somebody from close to the family, I think, actually, it was Chris Owens, of all people, believe it or not, the guy who had that wipeout at Waimea. Uh, last week from the kook that ran into him. Chris Owens wrote, uh, please from your heart and sincere prayers for Claw Grace, as many of you, as many of you have already heard, he was the victim of one of the most severe surfing accidents of all time while surfing at the backdoor shootout yesterday. I just got off the phone with my longtime uh, best friend, Fielding Benson, who is Kala's stepfather, and was told from him that Kala has regained consciousness, but he couldn't speak yet. I think because of the breathing tube in his lungs, but Fielding said he asked for a pen, and the first thing that he wrote down was to his mom, Mary Ann, and he said, did I win? It was definitely words of a miracle, said one of the doctors, and a really good sign of his critical situation. But he is not out of danger. With a bad head injury, along with huge amounts of water and sand that was still in his lungs, Kala is still at a big risk of pneumonia and also brain swelling. So he will be kept for at least a week in the intensive care unit at Queens. And Fielding said that he has around four doctors overseeing him. So praise God to protect Kala. Wow, that's that's amazing. Just the whole rundown that you gave us there is fascinating. I didn't know the depth of the of the wipeout of the story. I just you know I just knew he was in the hospital. I didn't know, uh, you know all the details there. You know what is interesting to me, sort of as a side note to this, is that you know in the National Football League there was a guy Demar I forget his last name Hamill or something or Hamers or anyway a guy for the Buffalo Bills who on the field they had to perform um, CPR he had cardiac arrest or something and they were putting doing CPR on the field and they canceled the game. And here's a situation where they're doing CPR literally in the water and then on the beach and um, just surfers, us being the way we are, we're just like, okay, you know, we put it on hold, but we're going to continue on. Like none of the surfers were like, because you know what we see that happens. I don't want to say a lot, but it's not unexpected. And well, I think CPR on the football field is unexpected. Like 10 minutes of CPR on the football field at the 50-yard line is unexpected. And it's under the eyes of, you know, 50 million viewers or whatever it is. Whereas here, let's be frank, um, you know, you can count maybe on both hands how many people have died at Pipeline. Probably, I bet it's around 20. 
you know, I, and again, I don't know the exact numbers, but so anyway, it's part of what we deal with as surfers and surf fans and pipeline. And um, it's just part of, of the drama. Yeah. And I think the reality is if they would have canceled that football game, they didn't, nobody, well, I'm sorry, they did cancel it. And the teams didn't continue to play football on the field afterwards for fun. Whereas if you cancel the event, all those surfers are still going to paddle out and catch waves because it was that good. And you don't, it's a finite resource. You don't get it that often that good. And so the event knew like, this is an, our, our our opportunity to run. Um, But I think from what I heard was the tone was very, very different after that, you know, like it was, pandemonium fun before and then after that it's a little bit more somber and serious but there's still waves on offer so the event goes on um but i was talking about the event has not crowned a winner yet and this is why was because of these injuries so stab wrote about it uh ethan davis i think was the author of this article and they put it really succinctly in the opening paragraph they said today was the final day of the backdoor shootout uh but we don't have a winner after two surfers were sent to the ER, one whose condition is still unclear, it hardly seems fitting to declare a champ. Thoughts are with Kala Grace, Makua Rothman, and Billy Kemper, all of whom suffered event-ending injuries. There were countless wave of the winner candidates from today and yesterday. Proper pipeline with the odd backdoor drainer. So, yeah, well, um, look, what I saw, and I watched parts of the second day and a lot of the final day, which was just incredible. Um, frankly, Kelly Slater looked like he's right there in the top two, if not the winner. He was just toying with it. Um, you know, I'm sure you saw the back, the backside wave where he did not grab his rail and was behind the curtain and riding the foam ball without grabbing his rail with his arms up high, almost kind of arching and came out. Um, and Benji Brandt had an incredible wave. There was an insane backdoor wave ridden by Tori Meister. That was just like next level. And there were so many insane rides. That's what made this thing so fun to watch. Like I said, the, the interval, and I don't know if it was the proximity of the swell, but it was just meaty and mean, but also rewarding if you had the the moxie to paddle into some of these waves and um, Clay Marzo. Oh, and by the way, one of the most insane waves came from a guy from Florida and it wasn't Kelly Slater, uh, Justin uh, Quintal, a former uh, world longboard champion got just a mind blowing second reefer that he got a sick tube on and then drove up into the next section. And it really, throated out and just sandblasted the living shit out of him that was that was a 12 if you're going to give a 12 i think that's a 12 it was that in the event i don't know i thought it was i thought it was in the because i saw i saw the clip on instagram and i'm glad you brought it up because i did not expect to see his name even out there like i don't think i've ever seen him out at pipeline which is why i think he was in the event i think that he was on a team but that's what got him there maybe (laughs) yeah and it wasn't, he wasn't surfing in the longboard event because the brand, the longboard heats 
a day, two days prior when it wasn't that good. But yeah, I saw that wave on Instagram and I was like, holy smokes, good on him. I've only seen him vlogging, you know, like he wasn't riding a log. He was riding a gun, but um, that was an insane wave. In terms of winners, though, again, I didn't watch the event in its entirety, but Kelly Slater stood out to me by a long margin. I mean, when the way, and we, we've said this for whatever criticisms I've leveled at Kelly over the years, they're more, they're mostly related to the poor quality of waves that are on tour. Cause whenever the waves are pumping, he's untouchable. I mean, maybe we can include John, John in the conversation, Gabriel to a certain degree, but it's like, he is a maestro there's very few people playing virtuoso, you know, classical, like Mozart yeah. on the piano. And that is Kelly with all of the art that comes with it. It is unbelievable. Yeah. And when you see how serious those waves are, like if you have the context of these people are nearly, I mean, these people are being hospitalized because of these waves. And then you see him on one that would hospitalize most people and his kind of flirting with it and toying with it and perfect positioning. Just, it's insane. It's totally insane. It is. It's where intelligence and, and grace and an incredible amount of God given athleticism combine. And, and that's what you really get. Cause there's a lot of guys with God given um, ability and with um, style and or grace but you, you also add to that Kelly's incredible intelligence, his ability to know which wave, where I need to be on that wave, which wave not to take. You know, he, he's just, um, he's like, he knows how to bring it all together. And part of, in addition to that, but pulling from all of that is 40 years of experience doing it at that location. You know, like that really, the intelligence also allows him to remember all of the information that he's garnered over those years. I feel like as people age, their bodies uh, start to atrophy and their brains start to atrophy as well. And I feel like Kelly's done a lot. A lot. Of, I'm feeling it. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> immune to it, but yeah. he he's done a lot of work to not let those things atrophy and to be able to compound the learning, you know, like, He's getting sharper and sharper and smarter and smarter. The calculus is becoming more sophisticated. So he's running that calculus when those waves come through. And it's like, that's why he's able to find himself in those positions. Well, I'll, I'll tell you who won the event. And the, the winners were you and I and everybody that I got know. to watch this thing. It, it was just, it was so refreshing, the format, the, the lack of scores, the lack of care of scores, because there was just wave after wave after wave. And then there'd be a, three minute, maybe two minute, maybe one minute, and then another set wave, wave, wave guys riding constantly. And there wasn't any, there was something I could say refreshing about the, Oh, he needs this. He needs that. No, nobody needs shit except to get barreled out of their brain, which is what they were doing. And, um, and by the way, I also thought I really enjoyed, and I know you've mentioned this, but the, the historical anecdotes that were, that were lobbed in there, um, on purpose, which I think is great, by Dr. Isaiah Walker, uh, we're just, I'm a history geek, a lot of you guys know that I, I love history, and so it wasn't just your standard, you know, Hawaiian um, sort of 
top level. It was like a deeper dive into some of the tribal feuds that were, uh, in, you know, inner island warfare. And it was just really cool stuff, man. Um, you know, I learned, which was, you know, a new thing for me from uh, surf contest. I learned about the Hawaiian history and the Hawaiian culture. I learned more. I got more uh, out of it, you know? Yeah, I agree. The commentary is definitely um, a reason to watch with the volume up. But I don't know. Did you see Nathan Florence's live stream during the event? No, this looks cool. So this honestly was uh, equally good in a lot in a very different way. Um, Nathan Florence, who, of course, has a huge YouTube following, figured out how to live stream the event and provide his own commentary. And <laughs> it was epic. I mean, this it sounds was like a lawyer could get involved. If this is the WSL, I'm sure there'd be a cease and desist. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're, you're not allowed to use the WSL's footage. You will get flagged for that for sure. Um, but Nathan, so Nathan was not surfing in the event. He was injured. Um, but he there's a lot of downtime to his commentary, you know, like he's not yeah. trying to fill every, but when he talks, he has not only very uh, expert level kind of commentary, but a very just friendly and familiar way of delivering the commentary. It's your buddy telling you what's what. So here's just a sample of what Nathan was doing during the event. Quick rundown of what we're looking at here in this heat. Ivan, Tori Meister, Kieran Jabor, Makai McNamara, and I think it's Kona Olivero in the heat. So it's five man heat. I'm not in the heat. I'm here streaming. They're saying I'm in the heat. I'm doing everything at once, multitasking. Jamie's not in this heat. Both of us had to pull out. I pulled out back injury. I'm not sure what happened with Jamie, but waves are firing six to ten. And we have what I think is Tori Meister going right now. Oh, going right. Oh my gosh. So I think. Right as he bottom turned there, the backwash hit, and it threw him too high into the lip. If we see a backdoor angle, you see it looked like it crumpled his front leg, and he went too high into the lip. If you guys don't know Tori Meister, he's one of the best backdoor guys out there, um, and it's because he goes out on almost any conditions. He doesn't just go out when it's perfect. He goes out and specifically hunts the gnarliest backdoor waves. That's what's so hectic with his program. Oh... So see how much information is delivered in that one minute clip. Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing is he's like, the commentators are saying that I'm in this heat. <laughs> I'm sitting here streaming. So even the commentators don't have up to the minute information, but because yeah. Nathan is tied in so tightly in the community, he knows what's everything who's who and what's what, you know? So um, again, not as, professional as some of the live stream or some of the professional commentary, but almost more insightful in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. The whole thing was cool. And I, by the way, Ivan Florence absolutely killed it. There was a lot of guys. I think there was like two guys that were obvious in the running and there was about 15 guys that were all in second place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, there was just so many insane rides. And at some point, I think the judges are like, Okay, you know, and that's sort of where Kelly stands out. You're kind of like, okay, who was the guy that was really next level? Now, um, I don't know. If, other than Kelly, who can you think that 
and I know you and I didn't watch all of it. You know, that's the thing is that we didn't watch it all. But the stuff that I saw was, um, it looked like Kelly was, and the commentators were pretty high on Kelly too. Yeah, well, I saw a couple of people get individual epic rides. Benji Brand, Emio, Sirsmack, I think is his name. Um, or he got one that he made at Backdoor that was next level. I didn't get to see that one. Uh, but Kelly had multiples, you know, like Kelly had four or five that were just insane. So Clay Marzo, Clay Marzo had a really cool backdoor one and he had a, a couple of good front door lefts. I didn't see those either. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it would be insane just to see Kelly win the thing because again, he did it at 50 at the WSL event last year. And then to see him kind of continue that. I think would be incredible, which by the way, let's talk about the upcoming pipe pro, um, oh, yeah. which I think starts in 12 days yes. or so. Yes. And of course this would be the kickoff of survival league 2023, which means you and I actually get to play in this event because we haven't been able to play for half of a year. Cause we lost mid season last year. I already made my pick, you know, and then there's a little box that says, why did you select the surfer and you're allowed to ride in? And I just wrote, because I like to lose often and early <laughs> <laughs> to get it out of the way. So less anxiety throughout the rest of the season. Oh my Lordy. So but survival, survival league, um, surf, vival, surf, Ival, actually S U R F I V A L dash league.com. You can just Google it. You, I'm sure you are probably already follow them on Instagram, but it's, super cool and fun it's twenty dollars one time you pay 20 bucks you have to sign up before the season begins that's the other thing now let's make that real clear you guys need to get on this right away i signed up yesterday and um, as david mentioned we got like 12 days till the waiting period so this isn't something you want to drop the ball because if you don't sign up before the first event you're not you can't play and there's five thousand dollars and three panda surfboards on the line so um Sorry to interrupt, but make sure that you go there and and get this thing going right away. Yeah, that's the thing. You're going to hear us talking about it and then be like, oh, man, I want to get in on this. And you won't be able to because you got to do it. You'll have to wait, actually, till the end of the season or till next season. Um, But it's the same format, basically, as last year, except the prize money has gotten bigger. So the cool thing about Survival League is all you have to do is the you get to pick one surfer per event. And that surfer just has to make it past the round of 32. And then you're into the next event. So it doesn't matter if your surfer wins the event or gets second. doesn't matter. All you got to do is make it past the round of 32. If they advance, you advance. The other caveat is you cannot pick the same surfer two times in a season. So maybe you just think, I'm going to ride Gabriel Medina. All, Gabe's not going to lose before the round of 32. <laughs> well, it turns out you got to pick which of, you can only pick them once. So that's where the strategy and challenge comes in is like you think oh well i'll just go john john for pipe or maybe kelly for pipe john john for sunset but well after three or four events you get through those top five guys and you're like shoot where do i sub in zeke lao maybe i should have used zeke lao for sunset you know because i'm not going to use him in whatever the wave pool or something or brazil or something like that so you really have to get strategic so what is your strategy well, my strategy for the first one is the obvious choice is John John or Kelly. 
or Gabe. And I think those are great choices. And in some regards, that's the best way to play this game is just pick the obvious one and move on to the next event, you know. But the secondary strategy is don't pick the obvious one because you want to hold on to John John or Kelly or Gabe for a later event that's not as easy to pick, you know, like a beach break or something. You know what I mean? So I've gone that route, which I went last year. I lost in the I lost the very first event last year. I picked Seth Moniz, figuring he he advanced through pipelines his backyard. That was two years ago, I think. Oh, really? Because yeah, because Seth made it to the final with Kelly last year, right? Oh, yeah. But I remember you did pick Seth and lost with Seth, but I think that was two years ago. Oh, I might have made the same mistake twice then, because this year I'm going to tell you who I picked just to let you guys know, make it fun. I picked um, Igarashi, Kanoe Igarashi, and I think I did. I pick him last year and lose with no. Anyway, I picked Kanoe Igarashi. He's actually got a really good record at pipe. He's made the finals, I think, twice, or he's been in like he. And of course, his competitive chops are insane. So yeah, I think Kanoe is going to get through the round of 32, and then that leaves me. I get John, John, and Gabe, and Kelly's. You know, Kelly, if it's you know, 10 foot at bells or something, you know, it's going to have to be big somewhere for me to put Kelly on there. You made a mistake. I did, huh? <laughs> I can still change it. You made a mistake. You're right. You, can change. you should go with Kelly because where else are you going to use Kelly? I know that's the only thing. Like if there was cloud break, remember last year, I think we we're like, Oh, G land, we're going to save Kelly for perfect G land. And it was four foot. Um, yeah. But where else? Well, Chopu. Chopu is the other spot that you would yeah. use. Right. But I think Kelly, or I think Pipe is the better pick for Kelly. The thing is, Kanoa is always a great pick. So you almost want to hold on to Kanoa until there isn't an obvious favorite at a spot. Right. Then you use right. Kanoa and it's like, he's always going to make it past the round of 32. You're right. You're right. So, but don't listen to me because I've never come close to winning this thing. Um, <laughs> last year, Griffin called oh, Pinto. Griffin ruined it for us last year. Yeah. Griffin that, ruined it for us. Where was that at Bells? No, that was a J Bear. Wait, no, he won J Bells. Bells. Somewhere Ethan, Griffin screwed us. Ethan won J Bay and uh and Griffin won El Salvador, but Griffin screwed us at Bells because he's made it past the round of it. And after that, he made it past the round of 32. He made it past the round of 32 in every event. He yeah. lost to Owen Wright at Bells, and Owen got, got DQ'd off tour shortly thereafter. It was like the one bad heat that Griffin had all year screwed us. That's right. I blame Griffin. We're still and, you. I, and by the way, I'm going to hold it against him. I'm not going to pick him for anything this year. Um, so... <laughs> By the way, we need to state too, if you do sign up or when you do sign up for Survival League, use the word SPIT as a promo code or a team oh, to yeah. join, Team SPIT. Um, yes. So we can track. Yes. So we can track everything. But um, so I, I've developed a strategy this year. My strategy last year was pick who I think is going to win the event, which was an okay strategy, but it wasn't factoring in will I need want that person for a later event throughout the season? Yeah. So I'm looking at the season as a whole this year, and I've developed a spreadsheet where I have my safe picks for the event. Like these are guys who are absolutely going to make the quarterfinals. And then I have my secondary picks. These are guys who are very likely to make the quarterfinals. And then I'm running a calculus across the rest of the season to see 
Will they also fit the safe picks and secondary picks in events down the road? And if they will, then I want to save them for those events potentially. And if they don't, if they only fit on this list for this event, then I'm going to use them in this event. For mm -hmm. example, Baron Mamiya. He's a safe, he's a secondary or maybe a safe pick for pipe, but he's a first pick for sunset, right? So it's like, yeah, I could use him at pipe, but I definitely want him on my roster for sunset as a potential pick, but I don't really need him for the rest of the season. So I can burn Baron Mamiya in one of these first two events. That's kind of the calculus that I'm running. That's a great uh, way to do it. It's an interesting way to do it. And I will say this, Sunset is, of all the events on tour, Sunset's the one wild card where you're like, Baron Mamiya could just get skunked for waves. It's not that he doesn't surf out there and know the wave like the back of his hand, but if the thing is no one really knows the wave. Like the, like Sunset's just a wild card. Like You can have a heat where you just get skunked. You're just out of position and you just don't advance. Like So Sunset's the scary event, I think. Uh, I think there Ethan are Ewing's the smart pick there. See, I got way better picks than Ethan for Sunset. What about uh, Jack Robinson? He's one out there. John John Florence is I want Jack totally for Margaret. A, a great pick too. Um, now the question is, what about the Zeke wave? Lau? Zeke Lau, I'm not putting, I'm not touching Zeke Lau with the ten foot pole anywhere. Zeke Lau is a safe pick for Sunset. That's the old, that's again that's again one of these things where you have to look at the season in its totality. You don't want Zeke anywhere else, but yeah. he. So that means you could burn him at Sunset because. You need yeah. Gabe, you need Idolo, you need Felipe in your roster later. Zeke, you don't need later. Just burn him at sunset. And he's I mean, you, he's you, one you out there. Put before. Gabe and or Idolo at uh the surf ranch. Yeah. Felipe surf ranch is for me. Yeah, that's what I meant. I meant Felipe. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so, Idolo's kind of a scary one too. Idolo's one like, oh yeah, he could win it or he could like not make like not wake up. You know, I like know, be but, in bed with his hot girlfriend and just for Mrs. Heat. <laughs> that's what that's what we learned last year with Idolo. You know, he really we the year prior, you can put Idolo in any event and he'll make it past, he'll make it to the quarters for sure. But now it's like he's become a wild card. He and he he's recently posted some more um, you know, me amor imagery with him and his hot chick. And it's like, I'm like, okay, this is either good because now things are stable, or it's bad because they're like at an EDM concert, just raging for three days straight. You know? Yeah. I, I would argue it's more the latter. It feels, <laughs> it feels very different than when Joel Parkinson was posting photos with his wife and kids having breakfast on the, on the balcony overlooking back door before he won the world title that year. Yeah. It's a little bit different. Yeah. When Idolo's getting in a limo with like Elvis glasses that are sparkly and there's some hottie on his arm and he's like, Got two Red Bulls in his hand. <laughs> look. No, the amount of baby oil slathered on his six pack is an indicator of where his priorities lie. Uh, we love I'm you. Not love. Seen... We want you to do well, buddy. Come on. I'm I'm blinded every time I look at his Instagram. I've not seen that much baby oil and glitter on a human being since I was in Vegas last time. Uh, um, maybe so that's your nickname Glittero. Instead of Idlo, we just call him Glittero. Yeah. Well, I'm down with that. That's fine. Um, so I've got a listener line call that I would like to play for you, if you don't mind, that relates to the Colapintos, Survival League, the Triple Crown, all of it. Wow. Holy shit. I think you um, received this in email or text format, but here's the audio version. You guys are dead wrong about Crosby being undeserving to win the Pipe Masters in 2021. He won at fair and square. 
In fact, since the format was digital, one can easily make the argument that his win was harder to achieve than in non-COVID conditions. I think what you are overlooking is the gravity of the COVID pandemic, which was absolutely unprecedented. During World War I and World War II, for example, schools never shut down. During COVID, schools shut down for a previously unheard of amount of time. While event after event were being canceled in 2021, vans took the bold step to preserve the rich tradition that is the pipe masters with a new format, two words that surfers hate and despise, especially new, since as you say, Scott, surfers are the worst. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. But the notion that this event was somehow unfair is completely fallacious. Vans was clear with the ground rules. They set the dates and requested digital submissions from the world. Gabe, Idolo, Ethan, Kelly, everyone knew what they needed to do to win. And if they chose not to compete, that's on them. The best pipe surfers competed for the prize. John John, Mason, Nathan, Seth, J-O-B, and non-locals like Crosby. The digital format cast the net wide open that included the likes of Johnny Boy Gomes, who in the past suggested he should get a wild card to the event since he's still shredding. Plus, Pipe has about 100 people out when the contests are not going on, making it arguably harder to get a wave than in a contest situation where there are only a couple people surfing the break and pipe was still packed during COVID. So that was not a mitigating factor. Before you yank the trophy away from Crosby, consider the contest origin in 1971, when Fred Hemmings erected a simple card table on the beach, invited only six people to the single heat event, and it was completely ignored by the press. Nobody challenges the inaugural winner, Jeff Hackman, as the first pipe master, even though Corky Carroll told favorite Jerry Lopez to not show up since he thought the event would be postponed as the waves were a quote, rather docile six foot plus swell per dead ahead Fred. Compared to today's pipe masters format, the inaugural format was totally different. The format changed with the times to become a better event. That's what great events do. They roll with the punches and change when necessary. If you're hanging your hat that COVID limited the field and made it easier for Cosby to win, please behold the precedent set in professional golf when Byron Nelson completed the streak in 1945, where he won 18 tournaments that year. I cut this part of the call out. There was a lot. <laughs> so oh yeah, back. there is no asterisk by Byron Nelson's name in 1945 when he completed the streak. He won the season, fair and square. In conclusion, I invite you to get off your high horse, embrace Crosby's incredible victory and welcome him to the exclusive club of Pipe Masters. He deserves it. So I'd like to thank Crosby Colapinto's dad for calling in and defending him. Well, uh, 
well thought out uh, voicemail for sure. Um, I will say this. He says some stuff that we just simply never said. I, I didn't say that it was unfair. What I'm saying is that it's apples and oranges. It's, and, you know, he made some reference to World War One and World War Two, not closing schools. That's because it wasn't a pandemic. It was a world war. Those are two different things. Um, so I'm not saying it's unfair. I'm saying that a digital submission competition is apples and, and on the beach, put on a jersey, you've got 35 minutes to compete against th three or two other guys is oranges. These are apples to oranges. We have a whole history of oranges and we won't have one bad apple. <laughs> bad apple is a good apple. Um, but I think his point was also that it's not a history of oranges. He's like, it was nectarines at one point it became oh. apricots no it's always been guys on the beach putting on jerseys under a time format paddling out and doing what you can do against your competitors that are in the water during so it was always citrus fruit it was a citrus fruit yeah um i <laughs> i know he has good points it's a and... good email i mean it's a good voicemail and and he's a longtime listener brian and we appreciate his uh you know his submitting of that to the show it's it's good it's good fodder well, maybe i'm wrong i've been wrong in the past i'll be wrong later in the day perhaps probably and uh, you never know um yeah it, the call was long by the way that was a form that was a four minute version i actually edited that call down so but i wanted to play it in the four minutes of it because he does provide some interesting cultural or uh, historical context text that I think is worth revisiting. So mm. I appreciate all of that. Um, but I think, yeah, he still misconstrued the point that you were trying to make and that I actually agree with, which is, um, yeah, the gravity of the pandemic is important. The, it might have actually been a harder event for Crosby to win I'm not even arguing that it was easier because of anything. It might've been harder for him to win that season. Still not a pipe master. Let's just name it differently. You know what I mean? Like to call it the same thing as this very clearly defined format over there is what you and I were arguing against. Crosby deserves all the accolade for winning what he won that year, but let's not call it a pipe master. Let's just call it something different. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you. And we love Crosby and his brothers and the, they're incredible surfers and again we're not taking anything away from what crosby did out there that year it was it was a great ride you know for the record i think this is um we've kind of mentioned his brothers obviously griffin colapinto is his brother but the other colapinto that we see on instagram Corey, i think is a cousin oh really okay i that, think that's so. probably true who knows yeah i'm not 100 percent certain but i think I think somebody mentioned that to me at some point and I never vetted it or looked it up. That's just what yeah. somebody mentioned. Um, yeah. One other thing that I want to let you know about is, uh, I mean, let's, I'll call it my Duke of the week. Even Surfline has been killing it. And yeah. so last week when we recorded, we were hyping that the Eddie was a go. The Eddie was greenlit and uh, we gave some, historical context on the event in anticipation of the event running on the, I think it was the 11th or the 12th. Well, it got called off. I mean, literally that day, I think an hour after we were done recording, um, Hawaii News Now or whoever did an interview, not Hawaii News Now, but the Hawaii uh, News Station did an interview with Clyde Aikau on the beach at Waimea. And Clyde said, we're going to call the event off. 
there's supposed to be wind, which you discussed on our show. And uh, so it's too risky. We're going to call it off. We're going to aim for the 22nd. There's a swell coming on the 22nd. Set our sights on that. Well, Surfline swooped in and they actually hired the same production crew that was running the Dehui Backdoor Shootout. They're called Salt and Air. And they live streamed the entire day of surfing from Waimea. They had multiple camera angles. They had commentary even, and it was free. And you could, it was a free YouTube embedded stream that you can uh, view on their website. And they crushed it. I thought that was such a perfect little solution. By the way, that wind never really created a problem for the day. It turned out to not be the 50 foot swell that they were anticipating. So it really wasn't an eddy day anyways. But the fact that Surfline provided coverage of it in real time was incredible. Well, this is a good segue into something that I want to bring up, which was this, um, this heavy water surf group. So heavy water surf group back in 2019, Jamie Mitchell and Zach Porter called a meeting of like the 30 to 40 of the best big wave surfers in the world to talk about big wave surfers owning their own destiny. And from those conversations, this thing known as the heavy water surf group was born and Surfline joined in uh, this conversation and decided to be a part of this, realize that this is of value to everybody. And so their Surfline is the distribution channel for the heavy water surf group and for big wave content to help give this crew a home and to give them some eyeballs. And the result is this thing called 20 foot plus. This is what Surfline has branded this distribution channel. And it's a new series brought to you by Surfline chronicling the world's best big wave surfers in the heaviest waves on earth. And on the very best days, Surfline will broadcast the action live as they did at Waimea last week. And they'll do it from multiple angles in ways guaranteed to take it all to the next level. In between swells, this 20-foot plus will profile this heavy water surf group, the community that is this thing, telling the stories of these guys and girls, the water safety, the shapers, other people involved in this challenging pursuit. It'll also delve into the science and history uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a unique way, probably giving some forecasting insight too into the planet's heaviest wave. So um, that's what 20 foot plus is. It's this uh, distribution channel. It's the brand that the heavy water surf group will be able to uh, put out their good content. And I think they're selling t-shirts and merch that is branded that way too. So um yeah, I did not know that whole backstory, but super cool. And, yeah, and I mean, when I when I say Duke of the Week goes to Surfline, and I mentioned that live stream, that was epic, and I would love to see that again throughout uh, swell events everywhere in the world, cloud break, whatever. But also their coverage of the swell that we've had on the West Coast has been incredible. Um, you know, it's funny. It's almost like magazines when they went away, it was okay because Instagram had replaced it and we can get real time updates and see the photos from within, you know, in real time from Santa Cruz to the Mavericks to Blacks to whatever. But now I find a need for it to be all aggregated in one location as well, because 
on Instagram, it's almost too diffused and spread out. And I need to be on it constantly scrolling if I want to actually keep up. It's nice to be able to, at the end of the day, find a home where it's going to have the A plus stuff and it's going to have interviews with the people all organized. And so it's come back into fashion and Surfline's done a phenomenal job of gathering that information, having those people on speed dial or text to be able to get quotes from them about what they experienced on the day and uh, recap it all. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hold that thought, hold that thought. Okay. Seventy-five, medium rare. <laughs> hey, Surfline does do a good job, and and Stab too, and they both do really good jobs of of putting the content out, like telling the story and going, "Hey, here's the YouTube clip." Then down further, after they give some insight, here's the Instagram that we we're talking about, you know, and they give you links to all the different things, all the different various distribution places, be it YouTube or Instagram or, God forbid, TikTok, which I'm avoiding, like the plague. Yeah. Well, I just feel like Surfline has re, uh, I don't know, reinvested and retooled their kind of editorial and the way well, they that did. Doing right? They brought they brought Nick um, Nick's Nick's on board there. Um, Nick Carroll is the new editor in chief over there, and he has obviously you know laid a foundation and um, some change and um, and has a direction that's his direction, and he obviously got sign off from the top which is why he was hired and so um i believe there are i i don't want to butcher this but i believe there are three three prongs to their editorial approach and it's you know swell events um it's travel and um it's like culture slash um you know crucial moments i guess and again i'm probably way off on some of those but i believe those are sort of their three prongs so yeah. that's kind of what you'll see is a lot of travel a lot of swell events and a lot of um, content that is uh, crucial to understanding the depth of our culture yeah well they didn't always have that though you know like there's been times right. that i've used oh, it for exactly. different things and there's times <clears throat> where i used it strictly for uh, cameras. There's times where I used it because they used to post all the different video edits would always be posted there. So that was 10 years ago. That's why I was going there a lot. And now I think they're doing a better job at all of it. Um, and so in addition to the Nick Carroll hire, I mean, a year and a half ago, I think they got that big cash infusion from an investment group and they brought in a new CEO, Kyle Laughlin. Um, and talking with him, it gave an indicator of big pieces that they were adjusting and moving. But now I think we're seeing that stuff uh, actualize and the way that it looks is really, really good and very informative, very thorough, very well done. And by the way, tasteful, like through all of these, uh, this last week or two of swelling on the West coast, they're not naming spots. I've noticed specifically on Instagram, like we were talking about my local spot that is normally dormant that Kelly Slater showed up to and surfed. Yeah. All my friends posted what the spot was. Surfline did not. Surfline never named the spot. They just said Kelly showed up in Orange County. And I noticed that too throughout the Central Coast and various places. They were not naming spots. So despite them having cameras in spots and kind of being 
the culprit of blowing up spots. They've actually heard our feedback over the last few years and elected to be very kind of delicate and tactful for how they disseminate this information. Yeah, I, my hat's off to them. Keep doing that. Yeah, they're killing it. <laughs> well, um, I think, oh, I've got one other interesting thing, maybe. It's totally okay. left field. This is a okay. quiz for you, okay? 1966, okay, 1966, Mickey Dora walked on stage to an event and wearing a self-presented medal that he had pinned to his chest himself, proclaiming him as the ultimate surfer. <laughs> and Mickey, of course, because he's Mickey, he got away with it. The audience laughed. Anyone else probably would have been severely criticized by their peers. Um, but somehow Mickey Dora, um, he missed it when God was handing out humility and humbleness. Um, where did this event occur where Mickey Dora walked on stage with a self-proclaimed medal that he pinned on his chest saying that he was the ultimate surfer? Um, was this in Matt Warshaw's newsletter? I don't think so. Uh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to guess it was the golden globes. No, this was 1966. I'm not sure the Golden Globes were around in 1966. Well, I mean, he was in he was in Hollywood movies, so I figured maybe he got an invite and he was in the Golden Globes for some reason and he pulled a right. stunt. Hey, good guess. It was the International Surfing Hall of Fame Awards, which was the precursor to the Surfer Pole Awards, which is kind of what we're at now with the Stab Surfer of the Year. It's basically sort of gone through this iteration. Um, but back then, it was the International Surfing Hall of Fame Awards. And um, when Mickey strode on stage there with a the, you know, black tie with all the rest of the guys, Greg Knoll and all these guys, Nat Young and Mike Doyle. And he just was like, I'm the ultimate. Screw you guys. I don't care what I get. <laughs> Were they assigning an award to him or was he just like a presenter? Yeah, there, who... was, there was like, this is an interesting award. There was awards for everyone. There was like, East Coast top five, West Coast top five, West Coast females, what East Coast female, you know, like, you know, Hawaiian, it was like, it was like everybody won, you know what I mean? There was a winner in every category. That's funny. Yeah. Um, one final thought before we sign off that I had when we were talking about the Dahui event, but I just never shared it. Um, for me, that event, and, and also thinking about the Eddie, I think last week too, this applies to. Those events summed up, I think, uh, what we discuss here a lot, which is um, the waves are the stars and that these events should be focused on waves of consequence because it puts everything else is secondary. The, com the competition between the two surfers in the water is secondary. It's really about seeing top level athletes be heroic, battling mother nature. And so like we said, it doesn't matter who won the event. You know, it truly, it ultimately doesn't. And so what we see with a lot of events throughout, even the pipe masters that Vans and Stab put together, and then certainly the WSL, is they're trying to impose a lot of things on this really pure thing. And then by imposing all the things, it erodes the essence of the original thing. And so, you know what, let's put jerseys on them so that we can identify who's who. 
the Dehuey backdoor shootout didn't have jerseys, you know, and it's cooler that it doesn't because we know what Kelly Slater looks like up and riding versus Tori Meister. We don't need a jersey to tell us the difference. So once you impose the jerseys, that slightly erodes the original thing. Once it ends up in a wave pool, it significantly erodes the original thing. <laughs> but every but every step along the way, there is a little bit of an erosion that just becomes a facsimile of the original thing. You don't need the facsimile at all. If you just have the essential component, which is good waves, everything else falls into place, you know, and so much so that we then don't even need a winner. And it'll be nice when we ultimately deem a winner, but we kind of already know. We kind of already know Kelly owned the day, you know, and so he's the winner. Yeah. Look, it's interesting. And it brings up um, Dr. Isaiah Walker again, who who mentioned that, you know, the Hawaiians were actually really competitive. King Kamehameha had they had competitions, you know, obviously they didn't have jerseys and I don't know how they judged it or whatever, but they would go out there and whoever probably whoever caught the longest, biggest wave, you know, from friggin, you know, castles all the way through you know i don't know <laughs> but, but it was fascinating to me and i'd actually love to hear more insight into the format and how those competitions went down if in fact there is any source material that explains that from back then i don't know yeah but i i can almost assure you that even back then that was never the initial that was never the primary goal was to find out who the best was it was yeah. everybody everybody in that scene was invested in being in the best surf you know, on the given day. And then secondarily is trying to figure out who is the best in that scenario. But interesting, I I did that interview with Felipe Pomar and he's talking about surfing's origins in Peru and them writing those reed kind of rafts that they built. And that being kind of the first time that people were standing up on waves recreationally. And he said, even back then they did make it competitive. They tried to figure out who was the best at doing it. That's interesting because there's always been, and I think Matt Warshaw will back this up because this is where I believe I get this, but there, for Matt and for the Encyclopedia of Surf, the surfing, uh, history of surfing, there's been a delineation between riding waves for enjoyment and riding waves because it was how you got in from your work. And for Felipe's to suggest that the Peruvians were riding waves for enjoyment um, changes, in fact, who perhaps or adds fuel to the fire of the debate of where and when surfing actually began, if surfing is purely for enjoyment. Yeah. And it was from the documentation and what he kind of brought up, it was an evolution. Like the fishermen were riding waves in for function and then realized, holy cow, this is fun. And the kids who weren't ready to fish were taking small versions of that surf craft and taking it out purely recreationally, you know, so it evolved from a necessity to a recreation. Yeah. Uh, well, w- one more thing too, before um, this is sort of a must-see moment, but the, the Dehui backdoor shootout, if you go on YouTube and they do this thing where they just basically show what they call end of the day. And it's basically five minutes or however many minutes it is long of all of the best rides back to back to back to back to back. So you can see the whole thing boiled down, all the best rides at least, boiled down in just super fast, you know, like I say, three to six minutes or whatever it is. Um, and so it's worth just going and seeing all these great rides that David and I've talked about today. Go to the YouTube 
uh, go to YouTube and check out the Dehui backdoor shootout. The fun, and just scrub all the way to the end, and it'll say "end of day" in the top. Oh, okay. So it's part of the Dehui's at the very end of the show. It's like Got here's it. all the good rides. So you pull up their eight-hour live stream and then right, scrub right, to and the end. Scroll, scrub down. Yeah. Good info. Okay, I, I had yeah. not seen that yet. Look, David, we've had an insightful show. We've said a lot. We've learned a lot. Cortez Bank, Dehui backdoor shootout. The women surfing the bar being raised by Juana Jones Wong and Justine DuPont. Um, good stuff today, David. Until next time, adios and aloha. Spend my days with a woman unkind. Smoke my stuff and drink all wine. in my mind, I'm making a star. Going to California with an again. Someone told me there's a girl out there Loving her eyes and flowers in her hair Took my chances on a big jet plane Never let them tell you that Was red and the sky was gray. Wondered how tomorrow could ever follow today. The mountains in the canyon start trembling, shade. Children of the sun begin to wave. Watch out. Myself, it's not as